This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Listen to the Thin Green Line podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Game wardens John Norris and Wayne Saunders talk about wildlife, the outdoors, law enforcement, environmental subjects mixed with current events and guests that are part of the Thin Green Line. And if you are one of those visual people like me, for $5 a month, you can see the actual podcast on patreon.com. Just search the Thin Green Line podcast on patreon.com and join us. We love our children. We protect them. We guide them. We prepare them for life in the world. With all that we do, from deep in our hearts, we cannot control all things. Life-threatening illnesses and disabilities affect far too many of our children each year. While we cannot change the circumstance, we can make dreams come true. Dreams to provide hope, to provide spiritual healing and strength, to provide moments of happiness and relief in the hardest of times. We can give a glimmer of light and hope in a time of darkness and despair. Join huntofalifetime.org to help make dreams come true, to provide hope for children with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nonprofit organization fulfilling dreams for hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Visit huntofalifetime.org to learn how you can make a difference. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from Game Wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves Game Wardens. 
This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Warden's Watch, Episode 56, Continuation of the Kate Matrasova Case. Interviews, then Sergeant Mark Ober, Bob Mancini, and Matt Holmes. And John, John Norris is back with us, and uh, he's had some exciting <laughs> things going on. So John, why don't you update everything, everybody, while you you know what you've been up to? You bet, Wayne. It's really good to be back. I have been uh, been in the wind a lot of last month, and um, apologize for that, guys. Miss being on the show, but it has been for a good reason. I've been very lucky to be incorporated into the uh, Monster Energy Can-Am uh, professional UTV race team. And uh, that's a desert off-road racing team. And a lot of our listeners know my history of racing in Baja and all that kind of good stuff. Um, and uh, the orphanage we support down there and all the things we like to do in the desert racing community. But um, now it's at a much higher level with an amazing tier one team that that is a championship team. And not only that is we're bringing the thin green line component of outdoor conservation education, border security, public safety, environmental crime uh, within America issues, all of those different things we care so much about here on Warden's Watch and the Thin Green Line podcast and promoting them through the off-road racing community that actually are very like-minded with all of our hunters and anglers and uh, Second Amendment aficionados all over the country. We're just kind of expanding that net. So I am going to be gone periodically. I'm, <laughs> there's 11 races this year that I'm going to be part of, and we're going to be racing <laughs> into next year. Uh, we're doing a lot on the southwest uh, part of the border of our great nation, and obviously with the border policy issues that we've uh, been discussing with some of our guests that are so hot in the in the current events right now in the media and those impacts as those cartel presence affect um, what's going on within our borders. And now that they have kind of free reign to get here and, and operate here, it's, it's kind of a hot mess and something we're doing by being down there and working with our law enforcement teams down there is staying fresh on it. So you're going to see a lot more of that guys in my thin green line film series. You're going to see us talking about it here on the thin green line podcast as this issue continues to be a hot button item and and just uh make make everybody aware of the issues and how much they impact the interior of our country geez i'm so glad john that you're going to be a representative for the off-road people you know because a lot of times they're not considered conservationists and so much of them are so much of them care about what what where they're going what they're doing and they want to do it the right way I think everything has that 1% that gives them the black eye, but it's so awesome that you can represent that that group. I think that's exciting. Yeah, no, I feel really blessed to be doing it, buddy. And and the thing about it is, is you just hit it on the head, is so many of these off-road racers are hunters. They mm. are anglers. Um, something I've learned about being on a desert racing team is you spend so much time camping out in the outdoors, in pits, when you're pre-running. You do so much outdoor activities that we love to do and and they do as well they're just not known for that side of the message which is kind of cool yeah without giving away the farm uh, no spoiler <laughs> alert yet not this next thin green line film we're doing uh, upcoming in the southwest we're going to be doing one next year that i'll talk about later that's really going to bring this um this desert racing community together at the highest level of uh of competition and, and endurance training and testing and, and challenges as it affects um, those those larger issues that we that we tackle on the thin green line, and it really is cool to have this this high reach community of millions and millions of racers, fans, sponsors, promoters, companies that are part of our fight. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And maybe uh, John can give some insight when we do that question and answer session on April 26th with our Patreon members. That might be a good time to hit John up with some of maybe the specifics that he might be able to talk about a little more freely then. So that would be a good opportunity uh, to, tr- to try to see what you can get out of John about what's going on. Very exciting. This And Wayne, to, to your point on the 26th coming up in April when we do our Q&A on Patreon, it's going to be a first time that since we've had this podcast for a year now, we're, we're right about a year. We dropped yeah. a thin green line right when COVID dropped last year. <laughs> we're a little past that. And we've never got to talk one-on-one with our members yet. So I'm super excited about this event coming up. So guys, as you're listening and watching, stack the questions, get big lists going. Mm. Don't hold back on anything because you have Wayne and me in captive, ready to go, excited to talk to you guys about everything. Definitely. So don't hold back. We're gonna go, we're gonna go down the rabbit hole on Q and A and give you guys some direct one on one feedback to what uh, what you're liking, what you'd like to see more of, and just questions. You know, we love to see it. It's gonna be a fun time. Absolutely, I'm looking forward to that uh, that live event. So getting back into this Kate Matrasova case, crazy, boy, it's been crazy case. Yeah, oh my gosh. Yeah, it's wow. been uh, like reliving it, I think, for everybody. You know, I'm getting a whole lot of good responses, John. People that read the book now listen to the podcast, make connection. People that listen to the podcast now are ordering the book and getting down to it. And game wardens across the country have so many different responsibilities. And that's why I like to bring out what New Hampshire does in the, in the White Mountains of New Hampshire with search and rescue, because it's really different and it's really dangerous. And, you know, just like you had your MET team in California, very different, very dangerous. We have our advanced search and rescue team that operates in very dangerous uh, places, doing very dangerous things. So much like that. And so many others across the country are operating in the woods. There were the police in the woods, where the rescuers in the woods. And that's, that's what we're doing so to highlight what we do as wardens is is pretty cool and to get these personal accounts from these game wardens is just been you know it's really cool and it's really great to share and these guys have been pretty open which uh it's just just a great thing they're being a little vulnerable they're letting people know the, the way it was and that's been really opening themselves up to uh you know, the public and, and trying to understand what we go through as wardens, as rescuers, the special search and rescue teams that we, we have, have that are volunteer and can be deployed in these extreme situations. It's been, it's been a great opportunity to talk about those things, John. Yeah, and this story brings it all together, Wayne. One, it's a, it's just an eerie, sinister story when you go down the rabbit hole of what happened in this particular case. Um, so that alone is worth listening and, and diving in more. But again, showing the capabilities of what your team does out there. And I think it just, I'm really proud that it shows the diversity of what we do on the Thin Green Line as conservation officers. It's not just that hunting and fishing license check, patrol warden, uh, you know, mission. Right. Just uh, that, And this search and rescue thing is becoming so much more relevant now, mm-hmm. especially in times through covid Katrina, you know, with the Florida SOG units that we had Mm -hmm. with their fish and wildlife operators um, down in Texas on the border, just to name a few, as well as you guys in New Hampshire and us out in California and so many different states that I'm not even mentioning right now in between that just kind of kind of fill and flow to build the teams they need for that unique job. And it's uh, this is one perfect example of how good that can be for the public when we're when we're implemented and effective. And it's a it's a great story. and Everyone's going to enjoy it. Great. Well, Thank you for listening to Warden's Watch. Please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate that. That helps other people find us and know that it's a quality podcast and worth listening to.
Thank you very much and enjoy this Warden's Watch podcast. And now, continuation of the interview of then Sergeant Mark Over, now Lieutenant. And so I remember the plan as distinctly since the, the MRS team wasn't too terribly far behind Matt and Bob, their point, their goal was to get to the point in the trail where they're perpendicular with the coordinate. Mm-hmm. I think it was, I don't know if it was a half a mile off trail, somewhere in that vicinity, I believe, that they would have to, that the crews would have to go off trail a half a mile to get to that GPS point. So their the initial plan was for those two to stay there and then wait for the MRS team to come up and then they would all go in together. But <laughs> the time that those, that Bob and Matt stayed they got to that point and they were waiting for MRS crew and they got so cold that they literally couldn't function. Mm. Their hands, they tried to start a fire to keep warm. Did they? They ended up starting. <clears throat> they eventually got it they going, They couldn't get right? water to boil. They couldn't get water to boil. And so they're literally hopping up and down, doing jumping jacks, trying to do anything to, to, get, to stay warm. And by the time... And anybody knows these jet boils and when you can't get water to yeah. boil with a jet boil, I mean, that's just in... That tells you how cold it is. I mean, that's and, insane. And I think that's why we went to the, uh, they got the other gas. They got a different type of different gas type. now. So it's, it's only one per district, I think, but it's it's uh, available to use if we need to. In those. Right. And right. then when, um, so when the MRS team got there, I think Steve radioed down and saw how cold they were and, and recommended they just kind of stay there and let MRS go off trail mm-hmm. to um, to do the search. And they can stay there and be a, be a relay or if they found her and she wasn't mobile then they could come in and help right um, so that that was the plan and uh, i think ultimately talking to matt and bob they probably would have rather have, have gone with gone them because them you're moving because you're moving yeah mm-hmm. and and one thing i forgot to mention is prior to this i think steve had radioed down to me when he was probably halfway up and said and recommended calling a second mrs team to come uh-huh. in and to bring a litter because after he'd hiked for a while felt the cold knew yeah. that she probably wasn't going to be mobile. They right. would need a litter and another crew. So that's when I called Rick back again, and he got another crew coming. Mm. So you got all this coming, and then they, they, they yeah, Glenn's coming out. Glenn's coming out. And so there's there's six six people up there at this point. I don't remember the times, but I, I do. So the MRS had a team of three as well? Team of four. Team of four. Okay, so Glenn's, so, so Glenn's out. coming out. So okay. there's Bob, Matt, and a team of four. Gotcha. And then there's another team of four coming. Mm-hmm. And they actually get there they get there and they start hiking up with the litter while the uh the first MRS crew was was working their way towards the off trail towards the coordinate right so they can clear that spot yeah it's somewhere around i don't know maybe one o'clock in the morning when they got to the point they did some grid searching but it's pretty easy to tell during the winter if someone's there or not because there's no tracks no tracks in the and snow the snow's got to be that year it was pretty deep too it's pretty I remember. deep so waist deep at yeah. least they struggled to get there and then it's, it's amazing that they made it because it's off trail mm-hmm. it's through the thick scrub trees and boulders and and, and everything covered in snow and uh, they got there and there was no sign at that at that point it's it's pretty easy come mm-hmm. back out come right. down re, re, you know we'll We'll have to make another plan in the morning. And Matt Holmes and Bob Mancini bail as they're coming out because they're 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 too cold. Yeah. They can't stand by and wait for that team to meet them anymore. Right, they're so cold. The jet boil's not working. They need to keep moving. They need to move. Right. So they they start down as soon as we know she's not there and that the MRS crew is starting their way back and they're just basically backtracking anyway on mm-hmm. their own trail. There's four of them 
Matt and, and Bob start coming down. And now the interview with conservation officer Bob Mancini. You were you actually got called out that night when the Mount Washington area was the second coldest place on earth and i through this podcast i'm going to probably say that 150 times but people can't wrap their head around what cold is until you experience the second coldest place on earth well it's funny you would think that i would have got called out because a reasonable human being would have been at home um, (laughs) in a warm house probably snuggled up next to a fire you know maybe spending a little time with a family that's that's what a reasonable human being would be doing (laughs) Unfortunately, that wasn't me that night. Uh, I was going to meet uh, Conservation Officer Glenn Lucas uh, over at the Moore Dam boat launch in Littleton on snow machine. So we thought it would be a great idea to go out and and patrol on snow machine when it was frigid temperatures. Well, do you and remember what temperature was when you were doing that? I th- I want to say that it was right around minus fourteen or so. Um, and dropping. And dropping, yeah. the uh, The forecast was gonna was gonna plummet. We, uh, you know, we just wanted to get into something mm-hmm. uh, per usual, and we hadn't had a chance to really work much that winter together. Um, he was up north a lot doing some snowmobile enforcement, and I, I was in my patrol when we we bordered, kind of, sorta, but not not really a direct border where it was easy to get to. Mm-hmm. So we were kind of linking up in the middle going to have a good time. But I, I remember zipping across um, Corridor 5 and I was going, I offloaded in Lisbon and I was heading up to Littleton to go meet him. And then I, I heard the radio, I had an earbud in and I heard the radio of Sergeant Ober was contacting uh, Matt Holmes, Conservation Officer Holmes. So he had said, um, need you to head over to Appalachia for a rescue. And I, you know, that that was startling because I'm thinking... What do you mean a rescue? It's it's yeah. horrendous conditions right now. It's only going to get worse. And and I'm in I'm in a valley. This is this is easy it was warm over here where you were compared to yeah comparative. And the yeah. wind wasn't blowing a hundred. So I called Sergeant Ober. And I was like, Am I going to be needed? And he's you know pretty much indeed you are needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was like, Well, I'm going to meet Glenn at the um, Mordan boat launch, and he said. Go meet Glenn. Go pick him up. But you're gonna want to double back and grab your snowmobile, you know, trailer and and meet him in your rig, and then bring him to his house to get his gear. So that was the plan. So I raced back down corridor five, uh, headed south to my truck, loaded up real quick, then flew up back north to Littleton, and like like clockwork, Glenn was there. And I tried calling Glenn on my way, but. Cell phone service is spotty, so mm-hmm. he was very surprised when uh, I said, "Hey, load up your machine in my trailer. We got to go to your house and grab your gear." Like you're, you know, I think yeah. his words were, "You're kidding me." <laughs> I was like, "I wish I was, bud, but I'm not." We went there, and he made a quick, quick run in his house to get his essential gear. We just kept his snow machine in my trailer, just out of ease and headed over to Appalachia. I think Sherelle, his wife, made him some quick warm fluids and a, and a few snacks because we had been patrolling all day. And mm-hmm. I think the call came in around 5.15 p.m. So we probably started sometime in the morning, maybe 7.30, 8 o'clock, I'm guessing. And we had been out either patrolling in our trucks or on snow machine the majority of that day. So we were already cold and kind of uncomfortable. The thought of having to go, I just... I was in disbelief my whole way to Appalachia. Like, mm-hmm. I cannot believe 
that we're going to have to go up Valley way right now in this, in these temperatures. Yeah. So, and you don't really, I, I know when you get called to this in your mind, you don't really even fathom how cold it is until you start getting ready to go hiking and you start putting your gear together outside. And then you start feeling the cold starting to infiltrate you as you're getting ready. And I think that's when the eye opener happens, it's that it, this is, this is unbelievably cold, colder than maybe you've ever operated before. Well, the, you know, and that was, that was just it. It was so cold that we didn't get ready outside where we normally would get ready in a trailside parking area. We'd, you know, open our cruiser doors and kind of just get what we needed. Um, put our, put our individualized bags. Like I had two, I have two totes that I carry around Mm -hmm. with all my essential search and rescue gear and all my bags are color coded. So I know, you know, my, my red, my orange bags, my emergency bag, it's my oh shit bag. Um, Mm -hmm. I got everything that I need in there to, to make things make do of a bad situation. And, you know, my sleeping bags are in compression sacks and I have another pack with extra gloves, hat, um, long johns, socks, other gear, just everything is very compartmentalized. But even if, even though it would have been quick to just do it in the parking lot, we were like, no, 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 we're going to head to Randolph fire and at least change up in there. But we were rushing still. It wasn't, you know, lackadaisical. It took time to get over there, but we were still kind of moving as quickly as we could. So I remember I didn't change my socks. Like, <laughs> what a what a rookie mistake, you know. Mm. I just didn't change my socks. Here I am sweating my whole day, you know, being in the truck, out of the truck, on snow machine, yeah. off snow machine. I could have taken 30 seconds to change my your socks. socks are wet. Yeah, I, they didn't feel wet, right. but they were. Yeah. They were wet. They were ha- certainly moist, and that was that was my catastrophic mistake for for the evening. There was a couple of them, but that was definitely one of them. You know, because you, you felt that yeah, um, almost immediately too. Really, you know, we got out of the left the fire department and took um, did a funk you know did a check on all of our stuff. It was conservation officer Holmes. Lucas and I all getting changed up, checking each other, you know, doing a little buddy check. Mm-hmm. And everybody had what we believed was essential gear. Um, we were prepared to do what was going to be required of us. And we were going to back over to the Appalachia to meet Sergeant Ober. He was going to kind of give us our marching orders of what, what our our assignment was. We utilized some snow machines for a little ways up the trail. It took us forever. We were getting uns. It was powder, fresh powder, so we were getting stuck and unstuck. Thankfully, Glenn can ride a snow machine just about as good as anybody, so he was breaking trail for us. But Matt and I, while we can ride, okay, it wasn't it wasn't as effortless as how Glenn was doing it. Mm. So we warmed ourselves up getting our snow machines unstuck a little of the ways, but it did help. I mean, oh, every little bit helps. It saved it saved some some walking, and when Mm -hmm. you have a you know sixty five to seventy five pound pack, depending on what you're carrying, right? Any little any little advantage will take. But yeah, it's it's it was an adventure just getting to the trailhead. Yeah, just based on all of the logistics to make it all work. Finding Glenn, meeting up with him, getting over to his house, getting his gear, going to Appalachia, getting getting dressed for what we had to have, mm-hmm. and then setting off for the trail and knowing that, I mean, even the hardiest individuals, even the best mountaineers would have 
real trouble in these kind of conditions. So mm. just as an unsettling feeling, you know. Yeah, no doubt. Can, can, can somebody really, if they're down, if they hit their emergency beacon, can they subsist in these conditions? Right. I hoped. Mm-hmm. I was hopeful. We all were. Mm-hmm. And in, in my, uh, it's been a while, but if my memory serves me right, the initial beacon hit was in one location and then a second a second beacon struck and it and it showed that she moved mm. which which we we weren't sure if that was the case at all because these things you know they they signal through satellite so weren't sure if just the satellite caught we, a signal we learned a lot about beacons that that, yeah. that search and rescue mission um, uh, unfortunately trial and error trial and error you try to I'm a, you know, I'm a glasses half full kind of guy. So I'm an optimist Mm -hmm. and I'm like, Oh, beacon moved. She's up and moving. She's trying to self rescue. This Mm. is good. Yes. And then my, I remember a little switch in my mind, like not now we're not so much going for a recovery. We we're going to maybe rescue this lady. We're going to maybe make a difference, maybe get a life save here. And so kind of the, everything's leveled up you're playing instead of playing a big game you're playing in the world series now you're in the super bowl this Mm -hmm. is you got to push hard Mm -hmm. you gotta you gotta fight your inner demons like you know it is uncomfortable right um keep moving uh, because somebody's life counts on it yeah i remember being extremely cold i remember being extremely uncomfortable i remember feeling like my hands aren't working the way that they're supposed to work when you have to pull them out of your mittens. Mm. Um, I remember being so cold and wanting to light my stove, but my propane in my stove was frozen. It wasn't working. Remember just, yeah, just extreme. Like that stove. How many times has that happened to you before? That jet boil was so reliable. Mm -hmm. I mean, I never had it not work. And then (laughs) to have my canister froze. um, Yeah. You know, and we learned something from that. Don't have the canister on the outer edges of your pack. Have it inside, maybe wrapped up in uh, in a heavy layer of something. Mm. Matt's canister was bigger than mine. He had a bigger canister. It didn't freeze all the way. Thankfully, we were able to use his and actually have some hot fluids, which was... But never boiled. Never boiled. It just got hot, like lukewarm. Yeah. But I'll tell you right now... I'll take lukewarm any day in those conditions. I mean, hot would have been amazing. Mm-hmm. I would have it would have been like hitting the lottery. Yeah. But beggars can't be choosers. And lukewarm and is good. Lukewarm is good. Yeah, my hands were. I was looking at them, and I thought to myself, "Why aren't they moving? They were. They weren't. Like I. Tr- I was trying to just get that dexterity going in my hands, thinking I could make you know squeeze my hands, open my hands, squeeze open, mm-hmm. and eventually." get some blood flow into them but they were just stiff they were right and i just the fact that you had to ask yourself that it means your brain activity was slowing too yeah slowing down yeah. and that that was uh self-inflicted when i was going through my little issue where i was which was basically at a rally point where we were going to meet up with some members of mrs i had gone as quickly as i could to that spot and what i should have done is been a better teammate and stayed with my group. But in all the other missions that we had done, one guy would be in the front and his headlamp would be on and the other two would be right behind and you just go and you really wouldn't look back because 
everybody stays together. It's just we've done this yep. a lot Put of your times. Head down and just keep just, going. Just keep moving. And I failed. I mean, I should have looked behind me. I should have checked and you know made sure that Glenn and and Matt were behind me. And I didn't. And I kept moving and moving and moving. Get up to that GPS coordinate that Sergeant Ober had given me. That was where we were going to cut down into this drainage and where supposedly that that newest ping was. was. Yep. But I get on station and I'm now I'm there and I'm waiting and I'm like looking behind me and where where are they? Mm. Um, so I'm standing still. I'm not moving. All that perspiration is now mm. turned into cold. So I you know I'm changing my layers as best I can and I'm exposing myself at the same time. Right and. And all that moisture underneath you is getting to turn to frosty. Yeah, it's turning frosty. But I started moving, you know, you, you that fight or flight kicks in and you know, again, those inner demons, you got to work through them. So start moving, start trying to get get your body, you know, going. And I just, just as I was about to start descending mm-hmm. to figure things out, I saw a faint headlamp coming up the trail and that was Matt and it was a really good feeling to see Matt because we had been in some pretty precarious situations over the years. I think at that point I had five years on and Matt and I had, you know, been on a fair amount of rescues. Yeah, you and Matt got left in the dry river yeah. as the helicopter flew away, right? Yeah. that And, and I, I would be, I, I wish I could say that that happened before, but I'm not really sure. I don't know the timeline because there's been so many of them where uh-huh. we've ended up spending, you know, spend a night or an extended period of time in, in the backcountry when we weren't planning on it. Yeah. It was really good to see that headlamp coming. And I felt, oh, that was, was like, this is good. This is really good. But then my heart sunk again because I realized that Glenn wasn't with Matt and kind of heard that whole situation. And I really felt, I really didn't feel so good after that. I'm like, damn it. You know, I wish, I wish I didn't rush up there like a bull. Uh, I wish I stayed with my buddies. Uh, probably could have, probably could have, uh, avoided this, but Matt told me that Glenn was all right. He was just doing a little bivvying and was going to descend. Wasn't feeling quite right. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense. I mean, we're out on snow machine, probably dehydrated, certainly yep. cold. And this hike would have been challenging whether we were fully rested or not. Right. And so the fact that we had been working all day in negative temperatures, you're you're dehydrated, you're exhausted, and you haven't even started. Yeah, and I don't think a lot of listeners understand what happens. A game warden does his normal activities during the day. Usually a search and rescue mission happens late afternoon, early evening, and you're out all night. And guess what? You go to work the next day. Yeah, yeah you don't call in sick. Yeah. There's no, there's very rarely are you sick the next day. You're, you're probably preparing your equipment to go back yeah. out. Yeah, and because you've used it and you've it used needs it. to be dried out and yep. prepped and filled and repacked properly. But you're not calling in sick. You're just preparing for the next one because it's coming. And you got to be ready for it, no doubt. So that's that's definitely, I don't think a lot of people understand. You do your eight hours, then you're called for a rescue. So it's like another eight hours on top of your eight hours. Yeah. And then you don't get a whole lot of rest because the next day you're working in possibility. I've been called out three nights in a row and overnighters. Yeah. You know, and fully, you fully expect it to, you, you know, the, 
the rule of three. The rule of three. <laughs> You're just thinking, yeah, that one was that one was bad, and mm-hmm. but there's two more coming, so I better be get my mind right. Yeah, yeah. And I had another rule that uh, Sergeant Ober broke that night because I don't like to get called for rescues until the morning. Call me a couple hours before, but I don't sleep. If you call me at eleven o'clock at night. I don't sleep the whole night thinking about the rescue. Yeah. So I always tell, don't call me until the morning. Call me, but Mark calls me at eleven o'clock. I think that night, and yeah. I just knew it was really bad. Oh yeah. When he breaks those rules, because mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. um, I was there two hours prior to daylight. I think working with him because you can't so, sleep. You can't sleep. Yeah, your mind so. is your mind is going. Yeah. So by getting back to that, I mean, you, you, Matt gets up there, um, tells you Glenn's Bivian going down, and uh, you're getting cold there. And are you waiting for MRS at this point? We're or? still we're still waiting for MRS, mm-hmm. but the thought was they MRS carries a little bit lighter gear than us. Mm-hmm. They they are experts in yeah. the mountain world. I mean, most of them are guides. They're guides. They have they been eat, in really drink it, love it. Yeah, they love it. They are very experienced. Mm-hmm. They're talented people. Yes, and if you're gonna go into a really difficult situation. They are the the people that you want. Absolutely, I, I, uh, we're very lucky to have them. Super lucky. One one of the people in particular that was coming um, is a person that I have uh, a great deal of respect for, Steve Dupuy, and I knew that he was coming. He is he is as squared away as they come. I felt reassured that that he was coming and he was going to continue the mission. So Matt came. We did some self-rescue, got got better, definitely was able to get the de- dexterity back in my fingers. My feet still stayed cold, but we were able to change out some layering, got warm or at least warmer, and I felt much, much better. Then MRS shows up on scene, and the plan is con- t- their plan is same as our plan. We're going to stay on scene, right on the trail. They're going to descend into the, the beacon location. And there was a bit of discussion at that point where I was having some trouble. Should we continue down? Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I was adamant. I'm like, we're not, we're not leaving until you guys have gotten to that location and are on your way back because we're your safety line. If mm-hmm. something happens, I'm not going to be able to feel good that right. I left you guys behind. So yeah, I'm cold. I'm uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to die. I'm going to be fine. That's me being a bull. I mean, but the reality is Matt is there. We now have a buddy system and there's three or four MRS guys that are going down to to that beacon. And so there's a good, everybody's kind of teamed up and has a good situation. But I just, I couldn't leave knowing that there were people going into some really challenging conditions and the wind above us, you know, it was ripping. We were in wind, but... Mm-hmm somewhat shaded from it. But well, you could hear the wind. You could just hear it. It sounded like freight trains above you. Yeah. You know? And I don't know. How close to tree line were you? Were you right there? It was not not very far. I'd have yeah. to look back at the GPS, but you, right you know, there. you could you could feel the wind when it really blew, you could feel it and you were in it. You know, your your hood would get blown off every once in a while, but above us it was really really it just I never heard wind like that. And I've mm-hmm. been in some some 60 mile an hour, you know, not sustained, but, but gusting 60 hiking in that, getting blown off my feet a little bit. This was far worse than that. This Mm. was, this sounded worse. This was loud and it was steady. Mm. And then every once in a while you'd get a gust that would just really catch your attention. And it's no surprise that it was the second coldest place on earth. And 
it's no surprise that the winds were 100 miles an hour. Right. I'm glad that we were uh, we were blocked from those a little bit because had I been exposed to those winds and that temperature, that really could have been that could have been fatal for anybody. Right. And it it proved fatal for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can you imagine putting yourself in her shoes with that wind temperature, or that wind that wind chill? I mean, negative uh, sixty. They were saying with the wind chill, making negative ninety. It was yeah. ranging. Yeah. So I, I think. Yeah. I mean, if the if the temperature is negative twenty nine or thirty, and the wind is blowing a hundred miles an hour, uh, that is bone chilling. Yeah. Frigid temperatures that we're just not. Yeah. Something. Most people have never experienced and never want to for any amount of time. No. So, because it doesn't sustain life. No. It's, it's a, there's a reason why, you know, people have nice houses and they stay in them <laughs> when these conditions are bad <laughs> and, and they, warm. and they look out the window and mm-hmm. they're, you know, that's, that's where most people, again, right. reasonable people are in those mm-hmm. conditions there. Yeah. They've, they've made all of their, They've they've made all of their arrangements for the evening so they don't have to go outside. They picked up milk on the way home. They loaded their outdoor wood boiler as soon as they got home, or they stoked the fire. They're not going back outside, right? But here we are, yeah, no going doubt. going into it. Yeah, and that's that's our job. That is, you know, it's uh, it's if it was possible to save her, I'm sure you guys would have saved her. And I wish, I certainly wish that we would have been able to get to her there's their words can't express how much i wish that we could have got to her but we didn't even go to the right spot initially like that that updated location proved to be a false read Mm -hmm. so we were going to a place that she didn't she never was right um had we known that i still don't think that we could have gotten up on that ridge in those conditions i think that you would have had a a real critical incident. I think mm-hmm. that potentially if, if we went up on the ridge in those conditions in darkness with the wind blowing the way it was, you would have had multiple fatalities. Yep. I believe it. That's, that's troubling. That's really troubling because you don't ever want um, to leave anybody. Mm-hmm. And that's not what we signed up for. I don't believe that it would have been a successful mission had we gone up there. Right to try to retrieve her that night, and I, I was uh, on the next day, but we didn't get off the trail until the wee hours of the morning, so I didn't have an opportunity to go up the next day, partake in the uh, in the search and rescue, and ultimately the recovery. Mm-hmm. I wish I did because they had some really bad conditions as well that day. The winds, the winds were still howling. Yes. Um, no, it's- yeah, there was even debate whether to go yeah. that day, but they think they were dropping to sixty miles an hour, uh, gusting. St- still treacherous. I was taking people off their feet during that rescue. Experienced mountaineers just uh, losing their feet because of the wind. So yep. it was a, uh, it was an extreme day. The sun was kind of out that day, uh, but it was it was blowing blowing a gale. And being there that day, not being there that night, I can certainly uh, maybe not relate to what was above tree line, but I certainly saw it you know, firsthand and pointed it out even to Charlie, her husband, you know, to look up on, it was a nice sunny day in Gorham and to look up on that ridge line, and it's just, it was looked like a snow fest. It was just all white and looks like clouds, but it's snow blowing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even clouds. It was just a crazy, crazy extreme measures. So. And it's an extreme place. Mm-hmm. That's the thing about it. 
if you live here and you work here and you recreate in the mountains, this is a beast that yes. you, you really do respect it because it kills people. Mm-hmm. It, and I shouldn't say that the mountain kills people because <laughs> that's really not, that's not a hundred percent truth. Right. People make a series of bad decisions. Exactly. That, that can ultimately consume them and cause a fatal incident. Mm-hmm. Kate was an incredible woman. Mm-hmm. Kate was a driven woman. Kate was probably never had any real adversity or failure that she couldn't accomplish and conquer in her whole life. I would agree. Which says a lot because she was an accomplished person. Mm-hmm. So when she set out that day, she didn't think that she was going to be able to not complete her goal. Right. And she was very goal oriented and she had hiked all over the world. And if you were to look at her resume, the only thing that you could really ding her on was that she'd went on some guided hikes and she didn't really have any solo experience. That's really the only thing you can ding her on in my, in my estimation. This was becoming her solo experience. Yeah. She had gone. And she wanted to start at a little 6,000 footer. A little 6,000 footer with some of the worst weather in the world, Mm -hmm. some of the highest winds in the world. Yeah. Again, and if you're from here, you understand. You understand it. But she had been in some places that I wish I could have an opportunity yeah. to hike someday. McKinley, Kilimanjaro. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So she, this is not a this is not a typical unprepared hiker goes hiking, and no. we have to rescue them. Do they happen hundreds of times a year? Absolutely. Yes. This isn't one of them. This is a hiker who believes that she's prepared, believes that she's done the research. Mm-hmm. believes that she can accomplish her her mission because she has such a driven way of her but but when you have so many things that are stacking against you you have your your you know your timeline you're going slower the wind is picking up you're going to be heading into a headwind on your return you're already tired you're already dehydrated it's only getting colder. The wind's only getting stronger. Like mm-hmm. these things, these things, you know, added up. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and like it, you said, your hands weren't working. Your brain was starting to slow. So, I mean, that's, that's what those things start happening. And, and she had been hiking all day. Mm-hmm. I mean, she did reach her goal to some extent. She just didn't make it back. Mm-hmm. So it's, I don't, uh, I don't fault her for trying. Some people are like, ah, she shouldn't have been up there. But I don't, I don't really see it like that. I, I, I don't think she was reasonable. I don't believe that she made a reasonable decision. I think that as educated as she was, she could have maybe gotten an updated forecast and used all of the facts and circumstances at her disposal to make a calculated decision, you know, to do a little risk management. But she's not, you know, she she had done the things that she thought was necessary to be there that day. Mm -hmm. Yep. Put some people in danger. But when I tried to become a conservation officer in 2010, I really wanted to be a member of the search and rescue team. I knew what the risks were involved and I I volunteered for that mission. Mm -hmm. That's just kind of all in a day's work. Right. You're, You're kind of putting yourself in Kate's position every time you guys go. Not in quite those conditions. Not in hopefully. quite those conditions. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully yeah, those, those were those were rare, but those are we, rare. We do see those. So. But that day taught me a lot. It 
makes you, I think it hardens you, makes you smarter, wiser, a little better suited next right. time you get into those adverse conditions. Yep. I know I do some things differently. Like, for example. Yeah, I wouldn't leave my buddies, stay yep. with them, be a better teammate, change my socks. Mm-hmm. Take a moment to do some self-care, hydrate, eat a little bit, you know, because you can only go so quick on an empty with no fuel. Right. So just really try to um, fuel up a little bit before you go because you're going to perform better. Mm. Carry your fuel maybe more inside your pack. C- carry my fuel inside my pack, maybe carry a bigger canister. In fact, we en- we ended up getting a really incredible donation from a gentleman down on the seacoast he uh, got us better stoves with a different fuel that wasn't gonna wasn't gonna freeze so we got some really nice msr i think they were whisper light stoves for some of the guys on the advanced search and rescue team some of the team members on the advanced search and rescue team which now we still have those and they they are designed not to freeze in, in these bad conditions. So mm. there was some serious learning out of it. Yeah. Um, and that the department has also invested in some lighter gear um, because we are carrying so much gear. You know, officers have, have better thermal liners, um, sleeping bags that are a little lighter, packs that are a little lighter to help with, uh, you know, it, it's adverse. Mm-hmm. We're going into tough tough, tough situations. But if you can cut down on your weight and your gear and you can perform better, then you're going to have more mission success. And, and our department has taken some, some really great steps in, in helping uh, individual officers be better prepared. So mm. there's a, good, a lot of good that came out of it. Yeah, no doubt. And we continue with interview with Conservation Officer Matt Holmes. And I'm sure, like everybody that was involved in that case, it's kind of uh, kind of in your head, kind of, yeah. It's going to be in you for the rest of your career, I believe, and the rest of your life, just that experience because it was so extreme. Absolutely. Um, when I think back on all the rescues I've been involved with, that one sticks out not because it was the most miserable, but it was by far the coldest and had some of the greatest potential to have rescuers seriously injured. Right, and that was just the, the, the temperature and the wind. And can you just describe every, to everybody what that day was and when you got there and how, how it developed? So for me, um, that day uh, was one uh, that was notable for a number of reasons, uh, one of which was that it had been forecasted to be such terrible weather for a long, long time. Mm. Some of my more memorable rescues have happened, you know, on these kind of doomsday forecasts, and uh, that was one of them. So on that particular day, it was just flat-out cold. And that afternoon, uh, I'd been out on snowmobile responding to a uh, crash scene, got that all taken care of. Basically, my route of travel back to my cruiser took me across the railroad bed that allowed me to see the high summits and ultimately the one... Uh, that uh, Kate was located on. Mm. And I remember going down the trail and, you know, as you know, for all of us who work in the mountains, your eye is on them because they mean something way different for us than they mean to the general public. Absolutely. So I can remember seeing the wind just whipping across the high summits, thinking, uh, you know, how miserable it must be up there. 
I also remember driving by the Appalachia parking lot, which uh, turned out to be the starting point for all of this. Mm -hmm. And Appalachia is, you know, busy all the time. I drove by that night and there was not a car in the parking lot. And I remember saying to myself, thank God, there is nobody there. I get back, it's already well below zero. The sun's just starting to go down, well below zero. The wind has picked up now down roadside. I'm getting uh, my uh, snowmobile loaded up, happy to be in the cruiser, Sunday evening, headed home, just ready to be out of the weather. And that's when things went south. Mm. Yeah, and, and going south, that was a call from uh, Sergeant Mark Ober then, now Lieutenant Mark Ober. It was, and uh, I don't remember a lot about what he said, but I remember the only PC thing I could say over the radio at that point was, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. Um, because it just uh, was salt in an open wound to know that we were going to be forced out on a mission in those conditions i'd tell you like i'd tell everybody else uh, i was very very angry when that call came in Mm. you know my gut reaction to that situation was how dare somebody put other people in that scenario because these weather conditions had been well forecasted it's a time of year that's dangerous anyway due to cold conditions in our mountains and through all that somebody took it upon themselves to go anyway, made a mistake, and now it was going to be up to a whole bunch of people who had no dog in the fight to go take care of the situation and put their own lives in danger. No doubt. And packing up and knowing that, did you pack differently that day for that rescue? Or You know, every winter rescue, I tend to take a lot of gear anyway. I've been mm-hmm. stuck out overnight a couple times. Yeah, um, I think I placed you out there once yeah, or twice. It's happened. <laughs> Um, but, you know, that, that particular night, uh, it was actually a difficult night to pack for because when you're starting out that cold, mm. um, it doesn't give you a lot of options to then layer up because you only have so many layers. So the big challenge for me was deciding what I was going to put on, knowing that even, you know, at 20 or 30 below, I'd be sweating hiking up the mountain, right? going through the bag, trying to figure out what am I going to put on? What am I going to keep in reserve? And then, you know, what do I need to have as basically, you know, my uh, emergency out? So as far as having, you know, extra gloves, extra hats, where are they located in the pack? That's typically stuff I want to know. But on a night so cold, that comes to the forefront. That was definitely uh, in my mind as I was getting changed and uh, getting ready to go up. And in your mind, were you thinking, this is the coldest rescue I've ever been on as you're gearing up? Absolutely. Um, I've been stuck out on some treeless peaks before in the winter, uh, but certainly this one, just by you know looking at the temperatures roadside, was going to be bad. It was also well forecasted mm. as to how bad it was going to be. And uh, in the aftermath, that was all uh, stuff that came to fruition, and it was absolutely true. Right. So you're gearing up, you're teaming up too. You got... Glenn Lucas and Bob Mancini with you, and you guys are starting out on your hike, and, you know, again, your temperatures. I think the best thing you said is, uh, as outdoor people, when that sun goes down, I think every one of us notice that the temperature all of a sudden starts to plummet. So that sun just provides so much heat, and when that goes down, 
Yeah, it just starts going down and usually doesn't stop till like 6 a.m. in the morning is when you're going to start seeing it come back. That's right. And even that time of year, you know, the sun uh, doesn't have a ton of power, but it has enough to make a difference. Mm-hmm. And like you said, all of us who recreate and work outdoors, we just know that when that sun goes down, things are going to get bad. Different game. You have that combined with some serious wind. And you don't have to be a scientist to know the consequences of that scenario. Mm-hmm. So the three of you start off, and uh, you're going up, and uh, Glenn starts having some problems, huh? He did. Um, it was just one of those where um, I'd simply say it wasn't his night. You mm-hmm. know, we've all had that. I've had that a number of times where, you know, no matter what you've done to prepare, um, you can, uh, you know, otherwise be <coughs> in... Uh, you know, good physical condition, have good gear, be well rested, and sometimes it's just not your day. Uh, for Glenn, uh, that was his. You know, it started out bad and got progressively worse as far as how he was physically feeling headed up the mountain. And he credits you for acknowledging this and making those decisions that, hey, you need to go back if this isn't your night, if this is, you know, if this is starting to so head south now. He's like, Matt Matt was the strong one. He was the, the team leader that day. He has experience, and he's the one that said basically, hey, it's time to turn around. You know, we all watch out for each other, and uh, that's why we go as a team and mm-hmm. not individuals. Every single one of us is very capable, but the, the strength is in numbers, mm-hmm. and I could just see it uh, in him that night. When, you know, I kind of looked at the totality of everything, I'm like, you know, this this is a very dangerous mission to begin with, mm. and we don't need to make it more dangerous by pushing uh, somebody who's uh, already not feeling good. You know, it's one right. thing to have an issue on the trail below tree line, but if we were to get off the trail, start floundering in snow, or end up for some reason going above tree line, you know, that that could have been the threshold that we didn't want to cross with Glenn, his health that night. Yeah, and you end up unzipping him so you can get him in a sleeping bag and stuff like that too because he can't physically unzip his his jacket. Absolutely. So it was very difficult to describe without having been there, but basically we had to work as a team just to do the basic functions that we'd all normally do as individuals. So somebody would need something out of a pack. We'd all stop. Somebody would take off their gloves, unzip the pack, root around in the pack to get the item, give it up, and then put their gloves on and basically walk around like a burn victim for five minutes because their hands hurt so bad. That was just kind of the routine was do your part, make your hands hurt to the point that they didn't function, and then let somebody else do it. Get your circulation back and do what you could. That's how cold it is. Absolutely. It's just so cold that you got to function in a time frame and together. Yep. And it was, uh, you know, a discussion that I had with many, many people in the aftermath of it. And uh, in talking with Paul Cormier, whom Mm. you know, uh, Paul uh, has been uh, a very avid mountaineer for a lifetime, very active in the search and rescue community, and somebody who I uh, put a lot of stead in as far as his knowledge and ability. And, you know, Paul said that particular night, if uh, a zipper broke, that could have been a fatal mistake. Um, or a fatal thing. You know, how often are any of us out in the woods when if you break a zipper, you could die? And that was just one of those nights. And that puts it in perspective, really, Matt. And that that 
to to a listener that says that that a zipper breaking could be a fatal thing that just uh, it, it puts it in the time puts my in my mindset that holy moly this is cold this is extreme extreme weather so you get glenn all set up and everything and comfortable and you guys head out from there or we did so we we had developed a plan with the four members of avsar who were going up ahead of us. I'm sorry, Mountain Rescue Service. Mm. As you know, the Mountain Rescue Service is, is really the A-team. You know, yeah. we, we bring a lot of stuff to the table, but these are professional mountain guides who live this lifestyle. It was decided that with their skill set, they would be the ones to try and go off trail and make the coordinate from the beacon that we had mm-hmm. down in the trees off the ridge line, because right. so we were in still in tree line, just below tree line. Basically. We were. I I don't remember the elevation. We were a ways up, but we I, were. Within I can remember tree line. that point in my head because I remember the one. That, you know, here here's where they went to last night. So and yeah, there were so many points that night. There so. were, and uh, you know, basically um, everybody had decided that to go above tree line that night would have been suicide right and so we established that as a group right off the bat that we will make an attempt at this coordinate hoping that that might be her and she might be there but we will not go above tree line in those conditions it was just flat out too dangerous after uh we got uh, glenn uh as secured as we could myself and Bob Mancini continued up and we were going to be the safety team. MRS was to go off trail and try and bushwhack into the coordinate and if they got in trouble Bob and I were going to be their uh, insurance policy meaning mm-hmm. we still had radio communication with the bottom we were on the trail even though conditions were brutal we didn't want to put all our personnel um into the woods off trail basically all eggs in one basket there needed to be an out and we were going to be that out yeah no that sounds like a great plan no so that you go up and you get to that point i remember your boil uh your what are they turbo boils i'm thinking jet boil jet boil there we go uh didn't work because you were actually trying to get some stuff to heat you up too that's right so um we were both very very cold and along those lines the thought was that if one of the mrs guys had a problem meaning namely hypothermia we were going to need to get him warm and one of the Mm -hmm. best ways to do that is with hot liquid to kind of warm from the core we carry stoves called jet boils which i absolutely love i got a ton of faith in them i think they're an awesome product and basically with the cold and the wind the convection working against the stove that night was all but insurmountable so it was a pain to get it lit we have small fuel canisters and large fuel canisters the small fuel canisters gelled up like even inside a pack it was so cold they gelled I had a large fuel canister, which provided uh, enough uh, fuel and insulation to actually effervesce. And even though it was absolute murder getting that thing lit as far as taking a lighter out of my pocket and sparking it, um, I did get it lit and I I set some water to boiling. I had to build a um, basically a shelter with snow to keep the wind from hitting the stove directly. Started attempting to boil water and i'll use the phrase attempt because i never got to boil between the cold and the wind it just wouldn't do it i got it warm 
but I never got it to boil. And I could just see this effort and futility. So warm was going to be as good as it was going to get. We drank hot jello or Gatorade or whatever it was we had that night, at least warm. And then set about just trying to stay in the game and keep ourselves occupied on the trail being this insurance policy for the other team. Right, because you're standing by, so you're, you're, you guys are pacing, you're walking, you're doing everything to, to generate heat. We're, we're doing everything to generate heat, and at that point, uh, both myself and Bob had on pretty much everything we had. So when you stop, that's when you really got to layer up. So we were layered up for the hike, and then now we're stopped, but conditions haven't changed. If anything, they've worsened. Mm -hmm. And so kind of our last layer is a big puffy jacket. Basically, the idea is it's like a sleeping bag that you can just throw on. So we've got on all our layers our big puffy jackets, our heavy mitts with Gore-Tex liners, Everything we've got that we can stay warm with is pretty much on us, and we're walking back and forth because we're still cold. I remember thinking, if something goes seriously wrong, our only option is going to be to dig a snow shelter and bivy up, because I still had a sleeping bag and I had a tarp. That was the thought that occupied my mind while we were waiting, is what are we going to do? Because this is already worse than most rescues normally ever get to Mm. so what are we going to do if somebody else has a problem and we need to get them out of it right right no that's that's good planning because you've already seen one problem because of the extreme cold and you know preparing for another one is totally realistic so how long are you in station there or you know the time uh, has kind of you know, diminished in my mind over the years. But mm-hmm. uh, it seems like we were there for about an hour and a half. Okay. Kind of to that point, we had made a plan with the MRS team because they they were all familiar with the ground. Mm-hmm. It was a pretty good snow year that year, and we knew it was going to be a chore to slog in on an unbroken uh, trail off a hillside. So right. the the plan going in was that they were going to make a one-hour attempt to get to that coordinate. I think it was about four-tenths of a mile off the trail. And if they didn't get there in one hour, that was to be it. It was it was to be aborted. Right. Um, but as it turned out, dealing with you know the driven, motivated people we're dealing with, an hour came and went, and they weren't stopping. They were still going. That was poignant to me. You know, as somebody who is sometimes called upon to, you know, manage a search is mm-hmm. that, you know, when you're dealing with people uh, of that mindset and that caliber, you can set a plan, but it doesn't mean it's going to be followed. And that was a classic example of it. You know, the plan was one hour and that one hour threshold was uh, long gone when they finally made it to the coordinate. Okay, but they made it to the coordinate and cleared that coordinate. They did. So they got there. uh basically did circles um, looking for any evidence of sign. You know, a coordinate uh, can be pinpoint accurate or it can't be. They didn't just go the coordinate, but they really took the time to search the area around it. There was just flat out nothing there. Right. It was it was a false point in the woods. At that point, Bob and I are really, really cold. You know, we're we're absolutely willing to stick it out, but we're really cold. We aren't even really talking much. We're just kind of mm. walking back and forth, trying to not dwell on the pain, 
associated with freezing and, uh, you know, just do our jobs. The call comes in from the MRS team that there is nothing there. Everyone in the group is still upright and going. And so they let us know, hey, we're going to be fine. We've now got a broken trail. If you guys want to head down, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we also haven't heard from Glenn at this point. Right, so, right. you know, it's still in our minds that he is below us all alone. What's going on with him? Right. So not only are we cold and in need of moving, but we need to check on him. Yeah, And absolutely. so that became the next mission. Mm-hmm. So you guys said, yep, we're heading out. We're heading out. And the MRS team was good with that. I want to say it was sometime around one thirty or 2 in the morning when that decision was made. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what Bob and I did was we headed down. Glenn had uh, – he had to get up and move, even bivvied up. Right. Um, he was uh, in need of moving as well, so he did. We all made it out. Right. And your thoughts in retrospective after doing such an extreme mission? I mean, are there things you would have done differently? Something, you know, just curious – Overall, I I feel uh, good about the job that we did. Mm-hmm. You know, we gave it an attempt. There was plenty of reasons uh, to not send anybody that night, you know, to mm-hmm. not put other lives in danger. But I do feel good about what we did. Um, I feel good about the gear I had. Um, it was just one of those rare nights in a lifetime that may or may never happen again as far as the perfect storm of cold and wind uh, you always learn something oh no Um, so there there are little you know bits and pieces that i've taken away from that the only other thing i'll say too is that my uh personal uh, sentiments towards kate uh have certainly softened since that night uh Mm -hmm. that that evening i was uh less than impressed to say the least but as you know in hindsight when you get to meet you know the family like charlie her husband and Mm -hmm. other people you realize that they're they're the true victims in this and whatever you went through pales in comparison to you know the the guilt and the other things that uh, they're going to have to live with for the rest of their life Mm -hmm. and so since that's happened i've i've softened to her in the situation uh, for those that loved her, it was still a crazy mission and one that will you know be with me for a lifetime. Nope, totally agree. Hey, thanks for taking some time and just sitting down and talking to me about uh, one of the most extreme search and rescue missions you've been involved in. I've been involved with you know lessons learned. I think it's part of a you know a legacy that we 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 pass this on to other people and we let them know what actually happened in that case and you know lessons learned and 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 move on from there you got it thank you matt sure thing way please join me game warden wayne saunders and other game wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife saving lives and having fun all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, 
wildlife investigation, murder investigations, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch.